All right, well, good afternoon. Um, for those of you that don't know, and that's a lot of you guys probably, I get the privilege of teaching uh, at a Christian private school in Huntington Beach. It's called Liberty Christian. And I teach a couple of subjects. I wear different hats. But my primary responsibility is to teach high school English. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been trekking through the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. Um, just by a show of hands, have any of you guys read the book? OK, cool. Uh, the, the, best, the better question is, how many of you guys have seen the movie? All right, well, for a lot of you guys, I will be spoiling it for you. Um, the story of Unbroken revolves around the life of an extraordinary man, and his name is Louis Zamperini. And when I say extraordinary, I mean this guy, he ran in the 5,000 meter run race in the 1936 Olympics. He was a runner. And he finished eighth in the race, which is cool. But if you ain't first, you're last, according to a philosopher that I know, Will Ferrell, right? Uh, if, you're first, if you ain't first, you're last, right? And yet, Louis Zamperini caught the attention of Adolf Hitler because on the last leg of the race, he was just going so fast that he finished it in a record time, 56 seconds. It, Hitler called him up, wanted to talk to him and said, oh, you're that guy. You're the guy who finished the race that quickly. After the race, Louis joined the Air Force and because of World War II, he was, I guess, dispatched or he had to go serve and on one of his missions to go and rescue a lost plane over the Pacific Ocean, his plane, the Green Hornet, crashed into the Pacific Ocean. And it was just Louis, Phil, and Mac. They were the only ones to survive the plane crash. And for 47 days, they would be there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, 900 miles south of Oahu. And the funny thing is, right from the get-go, right from the start, Louis and Phil knew they were gonna survive because they had committed to survive. They had the drive to survive. They had a plan to survive. They were driven by purpose. And so everything they could do in the present moment to survive, they did it because they had committed to it. So they would eat sharks, the liver of the shark anyway. They would catch the shark and eat it. They would eat and catch seagulls. They would use whatever material they had to make little fishing hooks to catch whatever fish would swim under their raft. They had committed to it, and everything that they were doing in that present moment reflected of the commitment that they made to survive. That was Louis and Phil. But Mac, Mac was lifeless. He knew he was gonna die. And so he had lost all drive. He had lost all purpose. He had made a commitment to die, and it showed in his actions. Numerous times in his memory of what was happening, Louis expressed his frustration with Mac because Mac was useless. He wouldn't do anything. He would just lay there ready to die. And here in this narrative, as I was reading the book, I just felt God pressing upon to my heart and speaking to me as if he was trying to teach me something that he has been trying to teach me for the past two years. And the thing that he's been trying to teach me is this, is John, if you truly believe, if you are really committed to this gospel thing, 
then your life will show it. Everyone will know that you are fully committed to the idea that God, who in his love sent his son to die in your place instead of you, so that you can spend an eternity at the feet of your creator, at the feet of your king, with the privilege of calling yourself son and daughter of God. And it will be evident to everyone. It'll show in your life, the life that you live, the choices that you make, will be reflective of the commitment that you made to God. The commitment that you made to heaven and the hope that we have in it. It has to, it has to show. As Pastor Paul alluded to it, it's Palm Sunday today, which means if you've been to a church for a while now, you know what it means. It means it introduces us to Jesus's last week with his disciples before he goes to die the death that he knew always that he was gonna die. We call it the Passion Week. And my prayer is that this Passion Week, and not just this week, but every week after this, that we will live lives that are an accurate reflection of our commitment to God, of the commitment that we made to our God. Our lives will reflect that. So the questions that arise, that should arise, the first one is this, is what does that look like though? What does a life committed to God look like in our present day actions? And kind of along to that question, what does it not look like? Are there certain things that we should be cautious of? Are there certain things that we should be wary of? But probably the most important question for us, as always, is why? Why should I care about living my life in a way that is reflective of the commitment that I made to God? Or why should I even commit to God in the first place? Right? Today, we find ourselves in the Gospel of John in chapter 12, in the midst of a dinner party for Jesus, thrown by a family, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And the occasion for the party? Well, take a look at verse one and two with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave, him a, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Verse one and two, as well as chapter 11, provides the context for this dinner. The dinner, this party, it was a gift for Jesus. It was for Jesus. It was a thank you gift. It was an expression of their gratitude. It was an expression of their adoration. It was an expression of their worship, their love, all for Jesus. Everyone in that room knew why they were there. They were there because of Jesus. He was the main character. Why? Because he had done the impossible. He had done the unthinkable. He had raised Martha and Mary's brother from the dead, Lazarus. Just in chapter 11, Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb. And can you guys imagine this scene with me? Everyone in that room knows who the main character is and they are trying their best to worship him, right? Martha in the kitchen, worshiping Jesus in the way that she knows best. She's serving others. That's where, that's the portrait of Martha that we have in the gospel. She's always serving. She's trying to worship Jesus in the way that she knows best. And Lazarus, he's reclining at the table. And you can just imagine this, Lazarus is listening intently. He's just focused and fixated on Jesus because just a couple days earlier, he had raised him from the dead. 
listening intently to every word of his king, of Jesus Christ. But where's Mary? What's Mary doing? Take a look at verse three with me. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. If the question is, what does a life committed to God looks like? Well, I think an awesome place to start is with Mary. We can look at Mary's life and see what a life committed to God looks like. The nard that Mary used to anoint Jesus' feet, we know was a perfume that was very expensive. It was imported from northern India, right? The other gospels will tell us, and even John later on in this narrative will tell us, that the perfume cost about a year's worth of wages, 300 denarii. A denarii was understood to be one day's worth of wages. So 300 days worth of wages. Take that to your present day context. Think about it for yourselves. What is a year's wages for you? I'll let you do the math. For me, it's easy because it's so small. <laughs> but for you, think about it. It's that much. The other gospels will also tell us that Mary doesn't spare any of it. In the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that Mary kept the perfume, kept the nard in an alabaster jar. And Mark tells us in his Gospel that when she anoints Jesus, she breaks the neck of the jar. She did that because she understood that she wasn't going to spare any of it. It was going to go all to Jesus. She wasn't trying to save any of it. She had no intention of sparing any of it for her own. Everything she has, she's laying it down. Her most valuable treasure, the thing that costs her the most, she brings it to the feet of Jesus, everything, all of it. There's an early Christian writer, his name is Laurinaitis, and he wrote a letter to St. Augustine asking Augustine the question, as Christians, what is it that we believe? And Augustine wrote back to Laurinaitis and said to him, that's not the right question to ask. You're asking the wrong question. The right question to ask is this, what do you love? What do you love? Because at the heart of your life, the pulse of your life, the things that fuel your actions, the things that fuel what you do, your choices, your everyday life, it's not fueled by what you believe. It's driven by what you love. It's driven by what you treasure. It's driven about what you care about the most. And if the question for is for us, and if the question for us is, what does a life committed to God look like? We can look at Mary's extravagant worship and say that it was rooted in a love for God. We can look at Mary's action and see that her life was focused, fixated, committed to God because she loved him and it showed Everyone could see it. Everyone in the room physically smelt her love for God. The perfume pervaded the room. Everyone in the room knew where her heart was, knew who she was committed to, knew who her king was, because it showed. Her life showed it. Her giving up of everything that her and her family could afford showed it. She understood that in front of her was a man, not just a regular man, but the God-man, God in flesh, 
And he had raised my brother from the dead, given him a second chance at life, and so she loved him. She loved him for the things that he had done for her. She was gonna love him for the things that he was gonna do. And so she takes her most prized possession, her treasure, and she goes straight to the feet of Jesus. She takes it to the feet of Jesus. In John chapter 13, the very next chapter, we understand that the reason why Jesus washed the feet of his disciples was because back at the, in those days, everyone understood the feet to be the dirtiest part of the body. And yet Mary takes her most expensive possession, her treasure, the thing that she values most, and takes it straight to the feet of Jesus as if she's trying to prove to everyone else, Lord, at your dirtiest and at your worst, you still deserve my very, very best. At your worst and at your dirtiest, at your feet, I can still bring my best. I'm giving it all. Not only that, but in verse three, it also tells us that Mary wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair. She is literally letting down her hair in front of the entire room. In those days, when a woman let down her hair, it was only in the most intimate and private moments with her husband. And so when she's letting down her hair in front of everyone, she understands what she's doing. And what she's doing is she's welcoming the pointed fingers She's welcoming the stares. She's welcoming the judgment. She's welcoming the shame. And she does it anyway because she loves this guy. She loves Jesus. Mary knew exactly what she was doing. Her life was committed to God. And the thing for us is this. If we truly believe in the kindness of our Savior and what he's about to do, then our lives will show it. There is no other way. Your pride your reputation, your shame, your comfort, your treasure, your lives, your hearts, all belong to God. And it'll show in your worship of him. And in that room, the heavy cloud of perfume that pervaded that entire house, that hung in the air, was evident to everyone of Mary's commitment to her king. She loved him, and everyone knew. And yet, in that same room, in that same fragrance-filled room, there is an example of a life that is not committed to God. A life fixated on something else besides God. A life fixated on money, maybe. A life fixated on comfort, committed to the worship of himself. We see a picture of what that looks like. Take a look at verses four through six with me. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. If Mary's actions, if Mary's act of worship was a clear indicator of her commitment to God, then Judas's actions his line of thinking, his suggestion is a clear indicator of his commitment to something else or to someone else. And because of the advantage that we have to look back on it, we can read about it, we know where Judas's heart was. His heart was in money. His commitment was to himself, to his comfort, to money. In fact, later on, John will tell us that Judas would sell Jesus, not for 300 denarii, but for 30 pieces of change. 
His commitment to money showed in his actions. But if we can, just for a second, not point fingers at Judas, but place ourselves in that room, look back at what's happening without any hindsight bias, but just put yourself in that room and listen to Judas's suggestion. Why wasn't this ointment sold and given to the poor? If you were in that room, that would be a legitimate suggestion. It is a very valid statement. For us, it would sound something like this. Why wasn't that money sold? Why wasn't that uh, money sold? Why wasn't that perfume sold? Why wasn't that money taken and given to our love OC partners? Why wasn't that money taken to, to serve the poor, to feed those who can't help themselves? Why wasn't that money taken to, to release the oppressed, to take care of the widowed and the orphan? And it's a very legitimate plan. It sounds very right. And yet Jesus' answer to Judas' suggestion reveals something that we all need to pay particular attention to. We can't afford to miss it. Take a look at verse 7 and 8 with me. It says, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus says something very revealing here. And it's, it's almost as if he's reminding Judas and the people in that room and us. He's reminding us. It's almost as if he's saying, yes, taking care of the poor, loving others, protecting the orphan and the widowed. Those are all good things. Those are all critical things. And yet, Judas, there's something even more important that you must be committed to. There's something even greater that your life should be committed to. Jesus is not dismissing the poor. He's not saying, forget about them. He's not saying, don't worry about them. He's not dismissing our responsibility to take care of them. We need to. But Jesus is simply taking us deeper, as if to say, I don't want you to fall into this trap where you are so busy doing the good things so busy giving your heart to the good things, feeding the poor, so busy taking care of the less fortunate, so busy taking care of the orphan and the widowed. Yes, those are all good things, but can you not see the wonder and the glory of the king who commanded you to do those things in the first place? Those are all good things, but can you not see while they are good things, that you are in the presence of not just a good thing, or a great thing, but you are in the presence of the best thing. You are in the presence of the most important thing. Crossway, of course it's my prayer that your life is not committed to money, to your own reputation, to comfort, to advancing yourself. Of course it's my prayer that your life wouldn't fall into that trap, but it's also my prayer that in our, in our quest to commit our lives to Christ, we will be mindful not to get lost, being so busy in doing good things, so much that we forget about the best and most important thing, Jesus Christ and our worship of our King. Yes, love the poor, house the homeless, serve the people, protect the widow and the orphan, build up the church. Yes, those are all good things, but it needs to come from a heart that is committed to the best thing to the most important thing, committed to making God our treasure, our everything. 
What does a committed life to God look like? If you are committed to God, if you really believe in this thing that we call the gospel, if you trust in the goodness, love, and mercy of our God, it will overflow into a present day and everyday extravagant pursuit and worship of our King. And everyone will be able to see it. What does a life not committed to God look like? Well, for starters, your life will be committed to something or someone else. It might be money. It oftentimes is. It might be your reputation. It might be the, your career. It might even be a good thing, like social justice. But whatever it is, it will show in the end who your heart belongs to. It will show in your actions. And if your life is devoid of the worship of God, if your life is devoid of your utmost commitment to God, it will show. But the question of why still remains for us. The question of why should I commit to God? Why should I care about my life being a life of worship and adoration to Him? This entire week as I was praying and preparing for this message, I was really struggling with Mary's act of worship and her expression of love and commitment toward Jesus. I kept asking myself, why would she do such a ridiculous and extravagant thing? And how can we tie this in with Jesus' trek toward the cross to his glorious death and resurrection? And I wonder if the best thing that I can do for us in this room, the thing that I can exhort and encourage you with is the most simple thing and I can point us toward the cross. And I can remind us that the reason we can commit to God, why we should commit to God, why we should care, why we should care about our lives being an act of worship and adoration to our King, why we should make Him our ultimate treasure, why we should give Him our heart, why we should give Him our everything, the reason why we can do it is because at the cross, God did it for us first. He made us His treasure first. He gave it all to us first. He committed to us first. He gave everything he has to us first. John 3, 16, we all know the verse, for God so loved the world. I love that it says, so loved the world. It wasn't just a little bit. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, he's kind of cool. I'll, I'll go ahead, I'll do that for him. He so loved the world. He loved it so much that he took the initiative to take the first step, that he walked toward us. He made his way toward us through his son in love, dying on the cross for us first in love, giving everything that he had for us first in love, committed to us first so that we would have the privilege of calling ourselves son and daughters of the Lord Most High. Why can we commit to God? How can we not? He has laid everything on the line for us, knowing that the God of this world died for us first, made us his treasure first, gave everything to us first. How can we not commit to him in thankfulness? Crossway Church, it's my prayer that our lives will be one that is committed to the gospel, that this week you will have the opportunity to express your worship, your love for Jesus Christ and for what he has done for us in extravagant and reckless ways. 
Not just this week or the week after that, but for every single day until our Father calls us home. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your word and the way that it sharpens us and for giving us a place like Crossway where we can sit together with our brothers and sisters under your word and let it speak to us. God, we pray, Lord, that the Spirit will go before us this week and prepare for us avenues, opportunities, where we can reflect the commitment that we have to you. And some of us in this room, God, maybe that's just a step too far. And so, God, we pray, Lord, that you are in this week really impress upon our hearts just how much you love us. God, what it means for you, what it meant for you to send your son to die for us. That it wasn't easy, that it cost so much. God, we thank you for all the things that you do for us. We love you so much. Help us to love you more. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.